Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace. Um, If this is your very first time, or maybe it's your first time in a long time, this is a great day to be here because we are starting a brand new series called Lessons in Leadership. And um, we are looking at an unbelievable leader in the Old Testament of the Bible. His name was Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to learn some lessons from his life and uh, from what God did in his life. And there are some of you who are here, and as soon as I say the word leadership, and we're going to be talking about leadership stuff, you, your, your ears perk up and you are just, you, man, you're, you're so excited because you love leadership stuff, you're in leadership roles either in work or in different roles that you play, volunteering or, or otherwise, and so, and there's some of you and you just love leadership books, you love leadership principles, you just leader, love leadership stuff. Now, there are others of you, and you're kind of like, oh, leadership, you know, I don't really lead much of anything, and I'm not, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know too much about all that stuff, and I'm not all that excited. Well, let me just tell you, this series on Lessons in Leadership is going to apply to absolutely every single one of us, because when you really boil down what leadership is, leadership, for me, boils down to one word, and that's influence. Leadership, ultimately is influence. It's how we influence others. And so whether you have any sort of a formal leadership role at work or at school or in your family or whatever that is, you might not hold any sort of formal leadership role at all. But let me tell you, you have influence. And so for five out of the next six weeks, we are going to look at how do we leverage our influence for God and for good. Now, I say five out of the next six weeks because um, on August the 11th, which is three Sundays from today, on August the 11th, uh, we will not be meeting as a church. We're going to have that Sunday where we're going to be off because the Arlington County Fair is here and the entire grounds of this facility is just overrun with the Arlington County Fair. So on that day, um, we will not be meeting, but every other Sunday of the year, we, we are here. That's, that's our one Sunday off And so if you show up, you'll just be at the fair and you won't be at church. And that's cool if you want to do that. Um, But anyway, so we are going to jump right into this uh, Lessons in Leadership series. And I am so glad that you're here for the kickoff. Now, um, before we get into Nehemiah and his life and what he learned and what we can learn from him, I just want to give you a heads up that uh, the last five minutes of the service, we are going to celebrate communion. And if you don't know what communion means or you're not much of a church person, Basically, communion is this little ritual thing that, that churches do where um, we have a piece of bread and we have a cup of juice, and the, the bread represents Jesus Christ and his body that was broken for us, sacrificed for us on the cross, and the, the juice represents his blood that was shed for us. And so we take that as a reminder of his sacrifice, his loving sacrifice for us, and so we will do that at the end of the service. I just want you to know that communion is uh, is open to everyone, and uh, if you want to participate, you can feel free. We'll invite you to do that at the end of the service. If you don't, and you just would feel more comfortable to remain seated, then that is totally cool as well. And we celebrate communion around here about once a month, just so you know um, how often that that happens. All right. So, the summer before my senior year of high school. I got a job working at an amusement park called King's Island. I don't know if anyone's heard of King's Island. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Um, when, when I was uh, in high school, I think it was the third largest amusement park in the world. It no longer is. But, um, but basically, the reason I signed up for that job is, uh, so I was almost 17, going into my senior year, and needed, needed a job, needed to make some money, um, but also really wanted to get a date. Um, and so I thought strategically, my buddy and I thought, what can we do that will give us the best chance of getting a date? And um, we, we decided Kings Island would have the most massive people our age, and we'd have the best shot. And so that really drove my decision of where I worked. I didn't work in the rides area, didn't work in the food area, and um, didn't work in the games area, because that's where the guys were working. You know where all the ladies were working? Merchandise. Merchandise. So that's where I worked, and at one point, there were 23 of us on the little staff roster in my shop, and there were only two guys. So I had a lot of things in my favor. Still, I didn't have the date and um, so it was one, one day, it was a Saturday, and I remember I got off work a couple hours early, early Saturday evening, and the park didn't close till 11. And so, um, you know, I worked right outside of this roller coaster called the Vortex, if anyone's ever heard of it in Cincinnati. But anyway, it's this, it goes upside down like six times, and it's just a killer ride. And I was like, I'm going to ride that ride, man. Like, I'm here anyway. I watched that thing. It's right, you know, right above our shop. And so I get in line to, to, to ride it after I get out of work. And just randomly, you know, the people that are in front of me in line is this, is this group of kids around my age. And so it was cool. We started talking. And they're like, oh, you work here? That's so cool. And, you know, we, we struck up a conversation. Well, there was this one girl in the group. There's a group, maybe six of them or so. And uh, she was really cute. And she was really into me. And that was kind of a good combination for me, you know, really cute, really into me. So, so um, we started talking, and she just thought it was so cool that I worked there. And, and she's like, how old are you? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a senior in high school, you know. And I was trying to play that. I looked like I was like 12. But anyway, um, you know, I was playing that up. And, and I'm like, how old are you? And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm 15. You know, she was, from, uh, she was from northern Kentucky. And she and her friends had just come up, like, you know, some parents had, had driven them up for the day. And they were hanging out. And so... Um, we, we went through that line together. It was like 45 minutes, and then we rode the ride. And then she's like, hey, do you want to come and like, ride some more rides with my friends and I? And I was like, absolutely. That's awesome, you know? And so for a few more hours, we rode rides together, and we were hanging out. And like, we were really connecting, you know? We, just, we had this thing going, and I was like, oh, this is great. Now, I just want to let you know, just in case you're wondering where this is going, this is the story of my first kiss, okay? So... Um, so as the night is going on and moving toward the 11 o'clock uh, fireworks that they would set off, not, uh, yeah, not, not the other kind of fireworks, but, uh, you know, the fireworks they were going to set off at the amusement park, um, her friends started to kind of teasingly, jokingly be like, so, you know, are you going to kiss her at the end of the night? You know, I just, I don't know if you've ever been in a part, like, totally juvenile and awesome how they were doing that. And uh, I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, we'll see what happens. And so, of course, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, am I going to kiss her? Like, how, you know, how is this going to work? I was kind of hoping that it would happen. Really wanted to get this thing, you know, wanted to, wanted to make it happen. And so the fireworks show comes on, and, and we're all standing there, and everyone's like, the fireworks, I'm like, oh, I should totally try and kiss her. But I just couldn't figure out how to make that happen in a smooth way. And so the fireworks came and went, and I was like, oh, I, I'm sure I've blown it. I mean, I just, just felt like that was the moment, and it was gone, and uh, I was kind of kicking myself. And, and so we, we walk out, long walk to get out of the amusement park, and we get to the, the parking area, and 
And this little group of six, she and her friends were going off to like the parent pickup area or whatever, or the parents would come. And I, you know, I had my car and I was in the employee lot, so we were gonna go different directions. And so at that point, um, she's like, hey, you know, come over here away from my friends, you know, and so we kind of went about 20 feet away. And I'm sure they were all just watching the whole time, which was awesome. But anyway, um, so we're, we're, we're standing there, and I just didn't have the nerve, man. So she just looks at me, and she goes, so are you going to kiss me or what? <laughs> it was pretty awesome. It's totally what I needed. And so I kissed her, and it was amazing. It was like this amazing kiss. And, um, man, I, like... I almost felt like I was getting dizzy, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was like that, like, head, you know, I mean, it was just, it was so cool. And, um, and I don't really remember the walk to my car, but I, I guarantee you my feet were not hitting the ground. I, I, was, I was, like, skipping through the, the parking lot, you know, they went their own way, and I went back to my car, and I drove home, man, and I was just, like, just permagrin on my face, you know, for the rest of the night. So um, the next morning, I get a phone call. And um, I said, hello? And she says, is this Derek? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, this is Katie. This was the girl's name that, that I had a kiss with. And so I said, oh, hey, Katie, how's it going? She goes, well, I have something that I have to tell you. Now, you know when someone says that, <laughs> that's never good. It's just never good. So instantly, I'm thinking, okay, we have a problem. I need to know. I'm one of those, like, when someone says you have good news or bad news, like, I'm the guy who's like, give me, I want bad, give me the bad right now, okay? Right, I, I want to know what, what's bad. Tell me. Let's go so we can move on, okay? I don't like bad news. So I said, okay, just tell me. You know, just what is it? What is it? Just tell me. It's cool. Just tell me. And she's like, well, see, the thing is, um, I knew that if I told you this um, last night that you probably wouldn't want anything to do with me. Like, you probably wouldn't have ever wanted to hang out with me and all this. So now I'm just like, what in the world is it? Like, you know, I thought this was like a normal girl, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, and, and so she was cute. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what is the thing? What is, she, what is it? What's she going to tell me? So I'm like, okay, just tell me. She's like, but you know, you have to promise that you won't be mad at me. I'm like, would you just tell me, please? What is it? She goes, okay, well, um, remember when I told you that I was only, that I was 15? Yeah. Well, I'm only 13. Now, let me just remind you that I am going into my senior year of high school. Okay, it's the summer before my senior year. I'm about to turn 17. And I don't even know what grade that put her in. I never asked. I didn't want to know. I mean, is anybody from Kentucky? <laughs> anybody here from Kentucky? Okay, okay. So I don't know if the school system exactly lines up the same. I don't know how that works. You know, it was Ohio, Kentucky. We had a little rivalry thing going. But like, I don't even want to know to this day. I don't know what grade she was in. But that was, do you see how this was a problem for me? This was devastating news. Devastating. You know, this is my first kiss. All right? Like, Finally, and who am I, who do I get to tell? Who am I going to tell? Oh, senior year, walking in, big bad senior, what's up? I can't, I can't, what am I, who am I going to share that with? I didn't share with anybody. I didn't tell a soul. In fact, 
just so you know, that, that phone conversation after she told, she told me that news, that lasted about all of 15 seconds after that. I was, I was done. That was it. I was so ticked because this was absolutely terrible, terrible news. Now, today, we are going to look at this guy named Nehemiah, who was this absolutely incredible leader. But you know what's fascinating about Nehemiah is the only reason that his memoir that he wrote, the only reason that that ever is in the Bible, and the only reason that there's all these tremendous leadership lessons in Nehemiah's memoir, the only reason those exist is because Nehemiah received some terrible news. Terrible news. The major problem. And that catapulted him into action. And so that news is what we're going to focus on this morning and then what came out of that. So we're going to jump right in to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Again, this is Nehemiah who wrote this kind of as a memoir looking back on his experience. And it's found in the Old Testament of the Bible. Nehemiah writes, In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, now, Kislev, they were on like a lunar calendar. This is 2,500 years ago, okay? So the month of Kislev in modern terms would equate to like mid-November to mid-December, okay? So very late fall time of the year, and um, that's where we are. It says, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, now, and I've given you a little bit of background in, in your program if you want to look there, but King Artaxerxes was the king of Persia, and at the time that Nehemiah's uh, writing this, he's referring to about 445 BC. According to historians, that would have been the 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes' reign, 445 BC. And so he's saying, okay, it's late autumn, 445, and I was at the fortress of Susa. Now, where the heck is the fortress of Susa? What does that mean? Well, Susa is in modern day Western Iran. I think we have a map we can show you. There's Susa on the right with a blue circle. Today, it is, it is uh, a town that in western Iran called Shush. Love that name. That's hilarious. So it's the town of Shush, uh, modern day if you were to go to, to visit there. But it used to be, back 445 BC, under Persian rule, it was the town of Susa. Now, here's the question that comes to mind. Nehemiah was Jewish, okay? He was one of the Israelites, and you see where Jerusalem is. There's that little blue dot next to, next to where it says Jerusalem. That's ultimately where all the Jewish people were from. So Nehemiah is 750 miles east of Jerusalem. What the heck is he doing all the way over there? Well, let me give you a little history. This is a huge date in Jewish history, okay? And it's just a good kind of date for you to, to remember to get some bearings. So about 140 years earlier, in 586 BC, the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire ruled the Middle East region. And the Babylonians, in 586 BC, they conquered the nation of Israel. They ransacked Jerusalem, and they basically took all the Jewish people, all the Israelites, and they just said, hey, guess what? Now you're going to be Babylonians. You're going to work for us. You're going to be the labor force. You're going to do all kinds of jobs. We're going to integrate you into Babylonian life. And literally, the Israelites were scattered from all over the nation of Israel, all over the Middle East region. So that was 140 years earlier. Let's fast forward to Nehemiah today as he's writing this memoir in 445 BC. Well, basically, Nehemiah is a descendant 
of this, these Israelites that were scattered all over the region. And so now he is all the way over here in Susa, and he is working for the Persian king. That's why he is in the fortress of Susa. This, this was like the king's palace. And so he's actually working in the king's palace. And we find out in the very last verse of this first chapter of Nehemiah's memoir that he tells us in the last verse that he was cupbearer. He was a cupbearer to the king. Now, if you don't know what a cupbearer is, to me, that was like the coolest job you could possibly have back then other than being royalty would be being the cupbearer. Let me tell you what the cupbearer got to do. The cupbearer, basically their job was to sample all the food and all the drink that the king would eat. The cupbearer would get to taste it and do quality control on it. How many of you guys would like a job like that? I mean, that's unbelievable to me. That is my absolute dream job in the world, okay? You get to sample, I mean, the most exquisite, amazing food and drink before, even before the king. How awesome would that be? There's one tiny little downside to that, very, very, very small. Um, a very popular way of, of, of assassinating kings was to poison them and kind of work through the kitchen and have some, you know, some people you could bribe, and then they would, they'd poison the king. So cupbearers, you know, you didn't always last, have a long tenure in your job. But, um, I mean, it's very small. You know, it's a little, little downside to that deal. Um, just as a, as a side, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually am the official cupbearer for Grace Community Church. And I take this job very seriously, but I... I see it as my duty as a servant to you all that I should sample all the food and drink before we do any sort of event, before we do any sort of training, any sort of social thing. You can pretty much count on the fact that I have already been there and I have already sampled to make sure everything's good. I mean, especially the brownies. You've always got to sample those brownies because you just never know how those brownies are going to turn out. And so this is my act of service to you guys. I'm just a giver. You know, what what can I say? Yeah, I know. You didn't even know I was doing that for you. Anyway, being a cupbearer, I just think it would be so incredibly cool. So this is what Nehemiah was doing. He's the Persian king, Artaxerxes. He's his cupbearer. And that cupbearer has a big job. That's a big role. The king really trusted the cupbearer, okay? So he is just like, he's got this really cool job within the Persian king's um, kingdom. So that being said, he writes, Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. Now, Judah was the, the province, it was the southern province of the nation of Israel, okay? And so um, they basically just come from Judah, and Judah was where uh, Jerusalem was. I don't know if we still have that up there, but um, that's, that's where Jerusalem, which was the capital, was located, okay? So they had come from, from uh, this province called Judah, visited way over here uh, to, uh, to, to, to um, Susa. So Nehemiah says to his brother and his brother's friends, says, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there, returned to Jerusalem from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. You see, um, the Jewish people were starting with the change of empires and different, different reign and stuff. The Jewish people were slowly starting to filter back to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem, to, to rebuild in the face of the destruction and everything that was going on there. So he's like, guys, 
tell me, you know, what's going on in Jerusalem? He's 750 miles away. He has no clue what's happening. And this is what they said. He says, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. This massive wall has surrounded the city. And the gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah writes, he says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. This news from his brother and his brother's friends completely devastated Nehemiah. I don't know if you've ever been so devastated that you were standing and you actually it buckled your knees. Like he, he couldn't even stand. He sat down and wept. This was how much this wrecked Nehemiah. Because you see, even though the, the Jewish people had been scattered all over, this was a nation of great pride. And this was a nation that was God's chosen people, that was supposed to be this tremendous light to all the nations of the world that would be this leading example of how to live and how to live for God and that people everywhere would come to know this God of love through this nation of Israel, through the Jewish people. And Nehemiah hears this news of just, like it's just totally broken down and the main epicenter of the whole deal, Jerusalem, is just completely destroyed. He figured, man, rebuilding efforts probably would have ensued. It was probably doing really well. And then he hears this, and it just absolutely wrecks him. It lit a fire in Nehemiah. And it says, when it says that for days, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. You want to know what that looked like? Basically, Nehemiah was just full on after God. I don't know if you've ever hit your knees to pray. You ever pray like you've been so serious, like you've, you've gotten on your knees to pray? Well, Nehemiah is like face on the carpet praying. You know what I'm saying? He is like all the way laid down. God, this is crazy. He is just, I mean, he's basically saying, look, I'm fasting. I'm taking a hunger strike. God, I am not going to eat again until, until you hear my prayers on behalf of my people and on behalf of our city. And God, until you move, until you do something about this, God, I am face down on the floor. Nehemiah is absolutely fired up because of the problems in Jerusalem. If you want to write this in, great leaders let problems fuel their fire. Great leaders let problems Fuel their fire. They don't let problems become the things that derail them and discourage them and throw a whole bunch of water and dirt on their fire. Great leaders let those problems fire them up. Great leaders see problems as motivators. Great leaders see problems as opportunities in disguise. In the 1950s, 
Martin Luther King Jr. saw a nation fraught with problems. And as he looked at this great country and saw the extent of the racial segregation and discrimination in this country, he couldn't take it. It fueled a fire in that man that led him on one of the greatest campaigns in human history. It led, ultimately, our country to pass civil rights laws, ensuring freedom and equality in this country, and inspired efforts all around the world. That happened because Martin Luther King Jr. let this problem fuel his leadership fire. In the mid-1970s, a man named Millard Fuller, many of you probably never heard that name before, um, was going around the United States and uh, also in other parts of the world. He was a very prominent attorney at the time, and he saw the extent of homelessness in our nation and in our world. And Millard Fuller said no more. It led him to start an organization that almost everyone in this room has heard of. It's called Habitat for Humanity. That vision of that organization is that every single person deserves a simple, decent place to live. And as a result of Millard Fuller allowing that problem of homelessness to fuel his fire, over two million people today now live in homes thanks to Habitat for Humanity. More recently, in the year 2000, there were a group of incredible leaders right here in Arlington, Virginia, that were fueled by a major problem. That problem was they were tired of seeing churches in Arlington County that were more concerned with who had control and who was in and who was out and where the money was going than the fact that less than 5% of people in Arlington County were going to church. And they allowed that problem to fuel a fire to create a church for people who don't go to church. It was out of a fire because of a problem that this church, Grace Community Church, began. And out of that, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have come to understand that there is a God out there who loves them, who has made them and has redeemed them. There are hundreds who have come to faith as a result of this church because a handful of leaders, including our very own Pastor John Sly, who is in Alaska this weekend on a cruise with his family, um, allowed that problem to fuel their fire, and they couldn't sit idly by. They didn't let it discourage them. They didn't just use it to kind of vent and go sideways with energy and just blame and get ugly and lose faith. 
they allowed that problem to fuel their fire. And look how far we've come. In fact, um, on that note, two Sundays from today, on Sunday, August the 4th, uh, you want to mark your calendar, you are not going to want to miss that day because um, that's a day where we're going to have a baptism service at the end of the sermon. Is we're going to do it in a one-hour normal service, but uh, we're going we're to do a shorter sermon, and then we're going to actually have people come up who have come to faith who are going to share their story of how they came to faith. And, um, and then we're going to baptize them right here in a little portable pool on this stage. And let me tell you, if you've been coming here and you've never seen a baptism service before, it blows, it blows any other service out of the water. I'm just telling you right now. There is nothing like hearing firsthand the story of what God is doing in other people's lives right here in our midst. You will not want to miss it. 9.30 and 11 o'clock, you can come to either or both or whatever you want to do. So bottom line, Nehemiah, he allowed this problem to fuel something in him. He didn't try to put it to the side. He didn't use it as an excuse to to get ugly and go on some rampage. He allowed it to fuel his leadership fire, and that's what great leaders do. So let me ask you a question. What problems are you facing right now? What challenges are before you? It might be at work. It might be at school. It might be in a relationship. It might be something that you see on the news or some trend or something that just wrecks you the way Nehemiah was wrecked. What challenges, what problems, what adversity is before you? And what is it doing to you? What's it doing to you? What's it doing in you? Is it making you bitter? Is it causing all sorts of negative, sideways, unproductive energy? Is it causing you to justify all kinds of crazy behavior because you're just so ticked off about it? Or are you allowing it to fuel a fire deep inside of you to do something about it, to channel it in the right direction, to make a difference, to do something that would be productive instead of destructive? Great problems, I mean great leaders, let problems fuel their fire. Now, you may be here this morning, you're like, yeah, 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 that sounds all good and everything, but that's really, really, really difficult in application, okay? Because there are many of you, and the problems that you have, they didn't just surface last week. They are problems that you have been dealing with and struggling with for years and years and years, and you have been face down and, and calling out to God and doing everything that you can do. And you actually are here this morning and you're like, you know what, listen, I don't even know if the fire is still lit because that problem has just taken so much out of me. I don't know if I got any fuel left. What in the world do I do in a situation like that? And yeah, 
I understand that those problems make me, you know, really not that much fun to be around a lot of times. And, and I admit that, that those problems then cause me to cause problems for other people. What the heck do I do in that case? It's not just so simple. And I agree, it's not. And I certainly have had challenges and struggles and problems that I feel like I've prayed to God hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But what I want to encourage you to think about is doing what Nehemiah did. You see, Nehemiah was so fired up. This problem fueled his fire. And you know what he did? To ensure that he didn't go sideways with his energy, he didn't go negative, he didn't cause all sorts of other problems coming out of that problem, which he easily could have done. You know where he took his problem? He took it straight to God. Straight to God. It might sound overly simplistic, but let me just, I just, because sometimes I miss the most simple things, the most simple, simple things in my faith. That problem, that struggle, that challenge, the first thing on your checklist, always, have you taken it to God? Have you laid it before God? Have you really prayed that thing through? I'm not just talking about, a, oh, God, kind of real quick. I'm talking about, you know, Nehemiah, man, he took God to task on that thing. And you see, if you're worried about how that problem, how that struggle, how that issue is affecting you, how that's causing you to react, and you desperately want it to fuel your fire in a productive, God-honoring way, you got to come to God with that. And what Nehemiah did is he basically came to God, and God showed him exactly what he needed to do. Exactly what he needed to do. That's what I want to encourage you to do, is to take that problem, let it fuel your fire, and take it before God and say, God, show me. Show me what I am supposed to do with this in a way that honors you. Well, Nehemiah did that. And um, we're actually going to get into this next week. You're not going to want to miss this. But as a result of taking it to God, God gives Nehemiah the answer. He gives Nehemiah the challenge. He gives Nehemiah what he is supposed to do. And um, it's an incredible lesson in leadership. We're going to look at that next week. So you're going to want to be sure and come back and join us next week. But taking that problem, taking that thing, bringing that fire to God and saying, God, what would you have me to do? I got a bunch of ideas for what I want to do, but what would you have me do? I told you as we concluded our service, we were going to celebrate communion. So if you're on the communion team, would you just go ahead and, um, and if you can go back and, and take your places there, that would be fantastic. So um, at Grace, we celebrate communion once a month, and it's this reminder of what uh, Jesus Christ has done for us. We believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God who died for our sins. And so this is a celebration of his sacrifice for us. And so we take a piece of bread, and that represents Jesus' body that's broken for us. And we take the, uh, the cup of juice, and we dip that bread into the juice, and that juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed on a cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled with God. So um, in just a minute, we're going to invite you to come forward if you would like to. You don't have to. Um, But what I want to encourage you to do is is this. I I want 
for you to remember that when we celebrate communion, it's also this great reminder that God didn't just kind of want to be this mystical figure that, you know, created the, the heavens and the earth and then created us and then just kind of left us alone to, to just figure it all out. That God actually came down to this earth 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully human, which I don't fully get that, but, um, but that's, that's, that's the divine paradox. Fully God and fully human. To show us his commitment to us, to demonstrate his love for us, and to remind us that we don't have to walk through the problems of this life, the struggles, the challenges of this life by ourselves, that God is there with us. And so as you come forward to celebrate communion, the team is going to come up on stage and, um, and, and join us and give us some music to do it. Um, what I would like for you to, to consider doing is this. Whatever that problem is, whatever that challenge is that's before you right now, uh, as you walk up and you take communion, I I want this to symbolically, you know, you don't have to go with this, but if you you like this idea, to symbolically bring that problem, bring that challenge, bring that struggle up to the communion table and lay it at God's feet one more time, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. Just say, you know what? Jesus, I, I just, I, I got to lay this before you. I, I need you. I need your strength. I need you to help me to do this. And if you're here and um, your problem, your struggle, your challenge is so deep and so pervasive and so ongoing and it, you just feel like it's snuffed the life out of you and you don't have, the fire is not even lit anymore. There's only one person who can light that fire again for you and that's God. And uh, I would welcome you to just join us over here at the prayer wall. But there is a team of people who would be honored. They would be honored. And I'll be over there too to pray for you. If you feel like I've prayed this so many times, I, I, just, I, need, I need some other people to rally around me and pray for me. We would be honored to do that. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then uh, if you want, you can uh, celebrate communion, and we'll close the service. Lord, Jesus, you told us in this world we would have trouble, but that you have overcome the world. Lord, we all receive bad news at different points in our lives. God, and problems and struggles and challenges come our way. Um, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to let those problems fuel a fire within us. that we would be able to to bring all that to you and that you would give us wisdom and show us, God, exactly what you want us to do, God. We would invite you to participate in an amazing way in that process. God, that you would just fuel us, God, fuel us to do whatever it is that we sense you calling, no matter how, how difficult it might be. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name.